Lot's destruction of Sodom. We saw Lot being taken out of the city uh, with his two daughters and wife. His wife looked back at the city. The Lord had told them to not allow their hearts to long for the city, that they should, as they left, their hearts should be separated from it and they should not look back toward it. And the implication is that Lot's wife was longingly looking back toward the city as it was being destroyed. And it says that she was turned into a pillar of salt in Genesis 19, verse 26. Uh, we discussed a little bit about how there at the Dead Sea, the massive salt piles that are in that location, um, the natural salt formation in the region could not have possibly produced the salt deposit that is there. There is some event that created that uh, very suddenly, and scientists debate that a little bit, but most of the, the chem chemists that uh, look at the salt deposit at that location say it is uh, beyond human understanding to see how that, oh, thanks, brother, uh, to see how that deposit would come to be there. So with the destruction of Sodom and all of these events unfolding, at verse 27, it says, And Abraham went out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. So this remembrance of Abraham, there are a few things to examine there. When you look at Abraham in these circumstances, it really it begins way back, but particularly in chapter 18. You might want to just put your bookmark there in 19 and go back to verse 17 of chapter 18 where it says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? And he's specifically referring to uh, the response to the cry that has come to his ears against Sodom and Gomorrah and how he's going to the city to see firsthand whether those things be so and if they are, to rain down the judgment that we just heard about. So he makes that statement, God does. So would it be proper for me to hide from Abraham what I am doing? And he then goes into, God does, an explanation of why it would be improper in verse 18 of chapter 18. Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, that's actually only a small portion of what the Lord is saying and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him. For I have known him in order that, here's the punchline, that he may command his children and his household after him, all the generations after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do 
righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken. Follow it a little further in verse 20. It says, and the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord, literally blocked his path. So within this discussion, the first portion is, essentially what God is saying is, this is going to be a foundational doctrine in the faith of Judaism and Christianity. And the subject becomes, as Abraham blocks God and begins to inquire and negotiate with him for the salvation of Lot and any that might be with him, the question is, would it be righteous of God to destroy the righteous with the wicked? And uh, Abraham even brings the accusation against God that it would be wrong and it would be evil. So then in chapter 18 at verse 23, Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked, as we said? And he negotiates beginning uh, at 50 and extending all the way down to 10. You know, would you destroy it for 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10 you know, each time God is saying he would spare it, he gets to 10. And it says in verse 32, if you'll look there, then he said, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he, meaning the Lord, said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. Okay. You're thinking, okay, I got most of that or all of that when we studied that previously. We just saw Abraham rise up, go to a place where he was accustomed to meeting with the Lord in prayer daily, and he looks towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and the smoke is just billowing off from that location. Okay, <clears throat> Many of us in this room can remember September 11th, 2001, and that horrific emotion that was created as that smoke was just billowing off from that island and the terror it created and all of the questions and everything. Here is a man who is standing there looking at that with no cable news network, no internet, no cell phone. It's 15 miles plus away and the smoke is just billowing out of the location. Notice, nowhere do we see Abraham ran to inquire of Lot. Abraham then sent out messengers to discover what had become of his nephew. We don't read anything regarding the condition of Lot. And I submit to you, that it's because Abraham has already inquired everything he needs to of the Lord regarding the condition of his nephew. Are you going to kill the righteous with the wicked? God has said no. He's now looking at God did not spare the city. He can see that clearly from where he's standing. What he has to settle in is somehow in that inferno, my nephew is okay. Have you ever faced things like that? 
where someone you love dearly finds himself in a place that's unquestionable. And you're left with giant questions about where are they at and what's going on. In the end, you have to trust the Lord. You have to trust his word. God has said, I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. They've confirmed together, Lot is amongst the righteous. So if the city's smoking, then somehow Lot has been spared. Somehow Lot has been saved in the circumstances. Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 says of Abraham, he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. This isn't just for the promise that he's going to have a son and he's going to become a mighty nation. It isn't just for when we get later and the Lord is saying, I want you to sacrifice your most beloved child. It's not for just one specific thing. It's in everything, you guys. He's, he's being commanded, he's being taught by the Lord to trust my word. Trust my word over even what you can physically see with your eyes staring you in the face. Even though you can see death and destruction in your midst, even though it looks unspeakably horrible, trust what I have said to you. It's hard, isn't it? You can read the word and there it is and you cling to the promise and you know float out of your morning devotions, you know shoot off a text to all your friends of hey, check out this verse. No idea you're going to get punched in the mouth, uh, you know, spiritually within, you know, a few hours and be reeling over that. Yeah, I say part of that faithfulness is actually declaring it to other people. Because then it also forces you to live up to what you've said. Right? If, if you find something in the Word of God that declares His truth to you, and you say, Amen, that's good. But I think I'll keep that to myself. Because I might be tested in that later, and it's difficult. Listen, if, if you think you know what I'm talking about, i got to tell you, I know it ten times better. Why? Because i got to stand up here and preach the whole book verse by verse. It's very difficult to declare to you, this is the truth of God's word. Let's live by it. I can tell you the Lord looks at my life and says, well, I've noticed some things about how you walk concerning that thing you've just declared. So this week, let's try that out. Nice sermon. Well done. <laughs> now let's go live it. You know, It's challenging. Challenging. Don't, please don't, as I give you that and you think, yeah, I have experienced that. Don't shy away from it. Preach it. Declare it. Make the statement. Build the foundation you're going to have to stand on. When you declare the truth of God's word, then you, in a way, are forced to consume it, forced to live by it. It was accounted to him for righteousness, right? Because we're not going to ever have any righteousness of our own. All of our righteousness, Isaiah summarized as filthy rags, worthless, disgusting articles to be discarded. Nothing we want. All of our righteousness is disgusting. We need Jesus Christ's righteousness imparted to us, placed upon us, poured out for us. No, oh, I want that. How do I get it? Simply believing God. 
trusting him. Some of those steps become very mechanical, don't they? You don't really feel like it. You just got to plod along. Pick one foot up and set it right down in the place that you have to. And pick the next foot up and set it right down in the place that you know you have to. And you move along with the Lord. You know, they trust in the shepherd. 19 verse 30. We had read, <clears throat> then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains. Remember how he pleaded to go to Zoar? He had that mentality that the wilderness was going to kill him. Don't send me into the wilderness. You know, he had been a man of the fields, a man of the wilderness, and he had moved into the city, and now he's got that heart and mind. Like, how am I going to survive without any, you know, mass transit or, you know, free Wi-Fi? This is ridiculous. And God is saying to him, you're supposed to go, to, okay, you want to go into the little, go into the little city. And then the fire falls and destroys the big city. And now he says, I don't think I need to live in a city. Why? Because my suspicion is, I'm not adding to the scripture, but I am speculating. My suspicion is he got into that little city and was thinking that it was going to somehow be better, quaint, less sinful than Sodom and Gomorrah. And what he quickly noticed like all of us have noticed, is wherever there are human beings, there is sin. It was the same thing. It was just a smaller percentage, right? You know, we went to Philadelphia, and we see the people staggering around, having just used heroin and dropped their needle right on the sidewalk. Every 10 feet, there's another heroin needle. The city's devastated. You know, and some of the people that are talking to us, they're saying to us, like, well, you know, but where you are, you don't have that problem. Yeah, we do. We actually have it in identical percentages. Identical percentages. It's just hidden in the homes. Hidden in the squalor. Hidden behind the closed doors. They're not standing on the street corners the way they do in some of the other cities. And I think that's what, this man realized is this is no different than where I just came from, which was destroyed by God. I'm not teaching against cities. I'm not teaching that urban life is somehow more holy. You know, to be rural is to be closer to God, anything like that. I, mean, I hope you understand God is a designer of cities. He's a builder of cities. Okay. I'm not saying anything against city life, but when you cluster that many human beings together, it tends to fester. You know what I'm saying? So, within this setting, he, he leaves Zoar, dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth. Now, pause for just a moment, because most of us are aware of what follows, and it's unthinkable and sinful and disgusting. But this situation is unfolding because of their ignorance. There's no men on the earth. There's plenty of men on the earth. What's going on is they've isolated themselves into this setting, which they were supposed to do. They're not supposed to do what follows. All kinds of problems are generated when people make incorrect assumptions. They don't know the facts, they don't know the circumstances, and they assume things. 
you know, keeping to the subject of our faith, how many people have you talked to who assume things about God that are untrue because of their ignorance? They've never opened God's word. They've never read God's word. They don't understand God's character because they've never known him. These two young women are about to embark on an incredibly sinful circumstance because their perception is wrong. Our father's old. There's no man on the earth to come into us as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him sexually, that is that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with him, or lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. That's pretty drunk. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink <coughs> wine tonight also. And you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites. To this day, and the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Again, this is a brilliant example of why we have children's church. So that when we have discussions like this, we're able to just frankly discuss what is here. Now, with that, I appreciate the fact that the scripture includes these passages because the religions of men, their whole process, <laughs> this is not an important sermon apparently, just smash the computer. What do you mean upstairs? Is it no. You have an enemy who does not want you to pay attention to this sermon. What was I saying? The religion of men is an effort to reach God. We'll never be capable of reaching God. God's religion is God reaching to humanity, God reaching to men. The difference in these is that when men create religion, they paint men in the best light because it's the only way you could ever relay the concept that man is ever going to be capable of reaching God. This right here is an evidence that God wrote this book because he shows us how depraved we are. He doesn't shy away from that. When it comes to the ridiculous failures of even his own nation and generations, he just declares it plainly. Why? Because he's reaching to us. It isn't anything we've done to achieve the status necessary 
to be acceptable by him. It is his grace and his mercy which has extended to our lives. This situation. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18. The New Living Translation says, Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. That's pretty plain. The scripture is as serious about the subject of alcohol as anything. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's very, very understandable when you read it as plain as that. Now, this development of nations, Ammon and Moab, end up being a very challenging circumstance for the nation of Israel for the remainder of their days. They have to contend with Ammon and Moab on many different circumstances. What's really beautiful is God's grace in the midst of the thing because they become a forbidden race of people, the Moabs particularly, the the Moabites. And when you read the scripture, you come to the book of Ruth. And Ruth is a Moabitess. And then when you read the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 5, you see that Ruth, the Moabitess, is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Without Ruth, Jesus doesn't exist. That's the grace of God. Your circumstance, you may look through your past and think, oh, that reminds me of my shameful, sinful conduct before I knew the Lord. Something unspeakable in my past. Know the grace of God. Know his love and mercy. Know how completely enveloping it is. Think about that. Jesus took a descendant of Moab and pulled it right into his family line. What a wonderful thing. Chapter 20, verse 1. It says, And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt in Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerir. Now Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. Sound familiar? We've heard this previously as they went to Egypt. And Abimelech, king of Gerir, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech by night in a dream and said to him, Indeed, you're a dead man, because the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, listen, ladies. We all need to discover what ointment this 90-year-old woman is using. You know what I'm saying? That the king would see her enter town and go, Hey, somebody go get that gal. 90 years old. When it says that her vitality was restored, it literally means her whole person. Her whole person was restored to the degree that this king, for all of the women that are accessible to a man of absolute power, he sees Sarah and says, I need that woman in my life. That's a remarkable testimony to the Lord. That that what the world sees the Lord doing in someone's life, even in their sinful state, is attractive to them, and they're desirous of it. 
not promoting some kind of sensuality in this. I'm talking about the many times I've experienced in life, sat with a young woman who was part of our lives, my wife and I, many years ago. And uh, friends from the world, she and her husband. And as we were surrendering to Jesus Christ, we were doing all we could to drag our friends with us into the faith. She and her husband were a couple of the people that we had brought to church and done Bible study with and shared our faith with. And, you know, I look back and we were ridiculously immature, but we were faithful to share and let the zeal and fire in our hearts spread to them. And we came to a crossroads moment with them where particularly the wife said, I'm not doing this, I'm not following it into your faith. And it had to do with her own sinful desires. She wasn't willing to let go of the things of the world in order to follow Jesus. And we begged and pleaded and helped and tried for some time after that, but they went their way. She came to our home years later and sat at our kitchen table and just sobbed because she had lost everything. She'd lost her husband, the one that we had had in church. She'd lost her children. She'd lost her home. She'd lost even her freedom, her health. And she was saying how she longed for what we had in our lives. Because we were on the same path with them. We're all going the same direction. We're on the same bus bound for hell. And we just got off. And they just continued the ride. And she wept bitterly. Saying, I wish I could have what you have. And we kept saying, you can. It's still available to you. And she was at the same crossroads. I can't let go of this. I can't surrender. I've got to still choose my own way and my own path. There are times where the world looks on to what the Lord is doing in your life and they're desirous of it. It takes surrender. If you're going to experience it, you've got to follow the will of the Lord. This man's completely outside the will of the Lord. He's just trying to take the benefits of the Lord for himself. And Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she's my sister? And she even, she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hand, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Okay. <clears throat> I've got to sort of let the cat out of the bag here. Right? Sarah's going to give birth soon to the promised child. If this man had had any opportunity to interact with her, 
then at least the question could have always been raised, whose child is this? When God is saying, I prevented you because you don't get to harm me, God is saying, you don't get to do this against me. Why? Because his Messiah is going to come through this lineage. You don't get to trifle with this. This is no minor thing. It's a very serious day when you cross God. When he's saying, you're a dead man, it's literally God calling Abimelech out. This, is now, this fight's now become between you and me. Now that is a thing that some people do. They don't realize. You, know, you read in the scripture, God is the defender of the orphan, the defender of the widow. He has a long list of those who are weak and maligned, who he cares for personally. God protects those that are his own. Here he's protecting the lineage of his son that is to come. I also withheld you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. That is what a wonderful endorsement of a man who just lied his butt off. How gracious of God to later, and then in the book of Hebrews, declare of him that he is righteous before me. When God looks at Abraham, all he sees is his son's righteousness upon him. What a beautiful erasure that our history is washed away in the blood of Christ. That all that remains is Jesus' presence before the Lord. How kind of him. It's, it's, it's important to understand this you know, as a principle within this passage. That, that all God is saying within this is, this man has already trusted in me to fulfill these things, so now I'm going to accomplish this work in his life. I've shared with you before as a congregation my life's verse. Everybody, you know, has some often have life verses, you know, a verse they cling to. And, uh, Philippians 1.6, Paul says to the church at Philippi there, I'm confident of this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it even unto the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the beginning stages of my walk with the Lord were a long list of miserable failures. I, I wanted to believe. I wanted to walk. I wanted to trust in Him. And I just seemed to be stumbling and failing and falling more than I was even standing in the right places. And there was a very faithful brother that shared that verse with me, and I've, I've shared it before, forgive my repetition, but he just, every week as we met together, would ask me, now, who began this work in you, Will? Was it you or the Lord? And I would say it was the Lord. Now, who's going to be faithful, you or the Lord? The Lord. Who's going to complete the work, Will? You or the Lord? The Lord. The Lord carries us through these things. This isn't an excuse. We can't go, well, I'm just going to screw up then. I'm just going to go ahead and flounder around in my sin and wallow in my misery and let God carry me across the threshold. We do see the cooperations of Abraham also. We also see him faltering in faith like this moment right here. 
one more example where the scripture doesn't flinch in showing us the truth about who a person is. It's interesting to me how we see these things, but then as we begin to walk with the Lord and there's someone in our life that we're following, if they falter, we like throw in the towel. You know, they were my example. I was following them. And I just suddenly discovered they're a human being. That's it. I'm done. That's a lame excuse that I've used. I know you guys have probably never, ever done that. but It is the truth. God shows us this man's failures. So that when we're seeing them in our own life, It's not like a new or unique thing to our circumstances. This is God's grace in this moment. He declares him a prophet as he's standing here in the midst of a massive failure. We're going to discuss that some more. Therefore, restore to the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you. So the liar is going to pray for me. Well, that'll be wonderful. When, when, when you're with someone that you know their weakness, their sinfulness, their failures, and they're about to pray, do you think, oh, great. Are you judgmental like I'm judgmental? You know, like, couldn't somebody more righteous pray? Isn't there, isn't there a real Christian in the room We're all filthy, rotten sinners. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. I was at a pastor's conference, and a pastor was relaying how he knew Billy Graham and had actually spent some time in his home on a number of occasions. And uh, on this occasion, when he arrived and began talking to Billy about how things were going. It was quite elderly, and Billy began the whole list of things we usually do. Well, I mean, great Lord, you know, wonderful, but, you know, my back and my knee, and, you know, it's just, you know, I, I can't do like I used to, and I just, you know, older, and my, you know, I have teeth and hair, and, you know, I just got all those things. And Ruth from the other room shouted in, Die like a Christian! <laughs> Billy Graham. Showing that he's as frail and as weak as you or I. The greatest amongst us is still very human. You know, if you're sitting there now and that's offensive to you, you're probably the worst one amongst us. Because you're blind to yourself also. We are all so frail. Pray for one another. This prophet who's in the midst of his sinful failure, he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. Now, this is not an empty threat. We're going to see there's actually already an illness amongst them. God isn't just saying to them, you don't do this, and I'm going to send something amongst you. We're going to see in a moment, it's already amongst them. They're already suffering as a household and a family. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, told all these things in their hearing, 
And the men were very much afraid. And, and part of that is what I just said. They're already suffering. There's already an ailment. And now the realization of, good Lord, this is what we're experiencing? This is our current circumstances? We've offended the living God? We stand on the threshold of his judgment? I wonder if they'd heard about Sodom and Gomorrah. That just happened, right? Abraham is the God of God, you know, that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? And now he's amongst He's a prophet of the God that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's amongst us? Shaken in the boots. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have, you offend, how have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What do you have in view that you have done this? See, this is actually a very old biblical set. What were you thinking is literally the question. What, what was in your mind's view isn't sin irrational how many times okay don't look at your own because we never look at it the same way look at your sin when somebody else is doing it and isn't it irrational you look at them and you just think what why why would they do that why why in the world would they go to, and, and maybe you've even said that why why are you doing this I find that self-identification with the failure helps people very often to realize where they're at. If you rather than that say, oh, I understand why you're doing this. I understand why you're being so irrational. I myself have suffered from, I myself am currently suffering from this. This is our human condition. You see, if I come to you and I say, oh, you poor, sorry sap, I just... Noticed how blind you are to yourself, and I can't believe you faltered into this area of sin. Then what I've done is put myself so far above you that perhaps I don't have any advice for you. Or even if I have advice for you, it's difficult for you to receive it because you're way down here where I just placed you, and I'm way up there where I've put myself. When in fact, I'm probably a little lower than you. Literally, because now I'm acting like I'm taller than you. Better than you. If I come as a brother and just talk on that horizontal plane of understanding, if you just talk of where you are and what the Lord is currently doing for you to extend his grace to you, sometimes the advice comes across a lot better. Listening to someone. Why have you done this thing? What was in your mind? What did you have in view? Verse 11, Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. So while this man is believing God, and it's being accredited to him for righteousness, he's simultaneously not believing God. Because if he's dead, <coughs> then God can't fulfill all the promises that he's already given him. He's believing with one portion, and disbelieving with another portion. Repeatedly throughout the scripture, the word of God refers to that as being double-minded. Right? 
pray and hear the voice of the Lord one moment. This is the answer. This is what you should do. Amen. That's what I'll do. And you tell your friend and your friend says, you're crazy. And you go, that's what I thought. I'm not doing that. James said, when we pray like that, we should not think that we'll receive anything. Because we're a double-minded man or woman, unstable in all of our ways, blown and tossed like the waves of the sea, up and down, right? Yes, I get the answer from the Lord. No, I probably ought to just die. Yes, no. Awesome, horrible. Everybody who's on the same boat with you is getting seasick from you're up and down. Everyone who's depending upon you, wives, children, family, work, co-workers, boss. Instability in the life. Believing and unbelieving simultaneously. Very, very counterproductive. I just remembered Stephen Wright. You remember the comedian Stephen Wright? Bought a humidifier and a dehumidifier. Put them in the same room. I'm just going to let them fight it out. You know. <laughs> believing and un unbelieving at the same time. It's, it's just as silly. Why do we declare ourselves to be a person of faith if we're not going to trust in God's word? Oh, it, it applies to them over there. Those people. But myself, I'm such a lowly bug, it doesn't do anything for me. No, no, it doesn't have anything to do with you. It has to do with God's faithfulness, God's capabilities. God is the one who's doing the fulfilling, not you. If you're sitting around saying, I'm just waiting for the day where I'm happy all the time, because then I'll be able to trust him. Maybe that's never coming. Right? Maybe that's never coming. Maybe that's only going to happen when you breathe your last breath. And you enter his presence. His word is going to be just as faithful. His word is going to be just as accomplished. Might as well be the person that it's accomplished through and with. Might as well see these things happening in your life. It's a very strange occurrence that we see developing, but very understandable. Because most of us, all of us have been through it. I thought you might kill me. But indeed... She is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. What's that old thing, right? A half-truth is a complete lie. This is what this man is doing. Again, I hope you identify with it, if this is your struggle. You know, lies of omission. Just leaving parts out so that there's no condemnation in the circumstance. Just telling the story in the best possible light. You know, leave all kinds of things in the dark. Just shine your words on the portion that makes you look the best it possibly could. She is actually my sister. You know, let's just be clear. Yeah, but she's your wife. And it would have been a violation of the law and God's law. It came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do 
for me. What a manipulative phrase. If you really love me, you'll lie for me. If, if you really love me, you'll sleep with me. If you really love me, then you'll engage in this sin with me. If, if you're my wife, you will do this kindness for me. It's not kind to lie for someone. There's a jailhouse mentality that per, permeates our society, right? If someone has done wrong and you then declare the truth, you're suddenly a snitch, a rat. Uh, no, you're a righteous person who's telling the truth in that circumstance. Oh, I'd rather just not say anything. Well, thanks for nothing. The truth needs to be known. We don't want to adopt the mentality of the world. We need to abandon the mentality of the world and be people of the truth. This is a lie. Your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Apparently, she was extremely attractive all along the way. And we saw that when they were in Egypt and how he made her lie to the Pharaoh. And created the same circumstances, created the same difficulty within their testimony, their false testimony. First Timothy chapter three, verse seven says, Moreover, we must have a good testimony among those who are outside, that is the faith, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. We have to consider how our conduct makes people think of the Lord. This king was just told, and then subsequently everyone under his power was just told, prophets of the Lord lie. How about that? You, you know what I'm talking about, right? You've met people that are like, you know, let's go to church. And they're like, I'm not going to church with you. That place is full of hypocrites. Like their workplace isn't full of hypocrites. Like McDonald's isn't full of hypocrites. Like the world, like hell itself is not full of hypocrites. Give me a break. You don't like hypocrites? You need to go to church. Your eternal dwelling place will be full of them if you don't. This, this testimony that's being given by Abraham is that the God that just destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah raises up men like myself who are liars. That's a horrible thing. This is Abraham's failure, not God's failure. But you see how it reflects upon God? Do you see how the, tra the character gets transposed upon God? This, this is what Paul is saying to Timothy about the conduct of the believer. Listen, it isn't just lies. Take the whole basket of who you are and understand that. Whatever degree of your sinfulness is just oozing out of you every single day, that's a testimony of Christ in your life to the world that's witnessing you. What is the world seeing of you and me? Are we walking in faith? Are we living according to it? Or is it a continual state of compromise? Look at these verses in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
beginning at verse 15, Peter says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Most of us are very familiar with that. Verse 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. The things that we need to be bad-mouthed for are the good things that we are doing. Personally and collectively, the body of Christ. The world's, understand, right? The world's going to hate us. They're going to despise us. They're going to lie and say evil things about us. Fine. As long as the reason they hate us is because of the good things that we do. May it never be that the world hates us because of the evil that we're doing. That's an unfortunate thing within a lot of the body of Christ. May it be less and less of us, perhaps never us. 20 verse 14 of Genesis, Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants, gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. Sounds like a pretty good deal, huh? It's not. It's not. It's terrible that Abraham is receiving this blessing in the midst of his failure. 15, Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell, dwell where it pleases you. Go wherever you want. I'm not going to interfere with you in any way. Then to Sarah, he, Abimelech, said, Behold, I have given your brother, can you almost hear that sort of, slant on it, the mockery, a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. He literally was mocking her in that moment. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. So there's the illness spoken of, described, his wife and his female ser servants, then they bore children. God created some kind of infertility in this whole household. So when we read it, it's almost like Abraham shows up, she goes into the harem, and then the dream is had, and then they're released. Apparently, there has been enough time for these people to say, what is happening to our house? No one is able to have children here. And to realize that once they are removed and Abraham is prayed, conception begins again. There was an illness upon them. Abimelech was going to die, him and all of his house. And the Lord is restoring their health to them. The Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This Blessing. You could almost get to a place, you guys, and I think some who declare themselves ministers within the body of Christ are a lot like this Abraham. They lie, they manipulate, they conjole, and they make themselves wealthy 
by their attachment to God. And when they realize this really works, they actually hone their skills at it and perfect it. They become better and better at it until they have the largest church in North America and the best smile you've ever seen. And they're just robbing the body of Christ of its wealth. Right here, Abraham could have said, you know, this whole lion to kings thing works out pretty well. We make boatloads of cash. We always walk away with livestock and servants and well off. We, where are we going next? We need to have the Abraham and Sarah traveling lion crusade. They repent of this. They leave it behind. The Lord has rebuked them through the process. Proverbs 21 verse 6 says, Wealth created by a lying tongue is a vanishing mist and a deadly trap. We don't ever as believers want to think that, yeah, I'm a believer and I know that I'm lying over here, but look how it's benefiting me. It's a deadly trap. We will be tempted to fall into it, avoid it at all costs. The summary for believers, it's a few verses as we close 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 8. Paul said to Timothy, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition, that is wastefulness. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, I want you to notice, number one, that's not just a quib saying. Number two, kinds of is actually in italics, meaning it was added after the fact. The original version would then read, for the love of money is a root of all evil. That's quite remarkable. The scripture is telling us that that lustful desire for money and wealth is a root of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, or woman of God here this morning, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. When you see Abraham and the blessing that is coming upon him, it's important to understand that the source of the blessing is the Lord. He's going to have to live with the guilt of this nation under Abimelech having the mindset that he created regarding God. He's created a bitterness in these people. He's created a distrust. He's created a faithlessness in those people. It's going to take God's grace 
to forgive them that. You think of what Jesus said, right? If you cause one of my little ones to stumble into sin, it'd be better for you that a millstone be hang around your neck and you be thrown into the depths of the sea. My pastor was the first one I heard put that in such graphic understanding. The millstone he's referring to is the lower millstone. Massive, huge. It's not like you're going to get in the water with some little, you know, kitchen aid millstone and just tread water with that thing around your neck until you get to safety. This is massive, huge, crush you with its weight, tied around your neck, cast into the depths of the sea. Atmospheric pressure doubles every 33 feet as you descend. You're going to rocket towards the ocean floor with a millstone of that size tied around your neck. What's going to happen is you're going to be crushed to death by the weight of the ocean before you ever even drown. Did you think about God when he said that and that's his mindset? Can you maybe now view Jesus with some gritted teeth saying it would be better for you? that a millstone be hung around your neck and you be thrown into the depths of the sea. That's some heavy-duty condemnation. Uh, I just saw Abraham stumble a whole nation. The only way this is forgiven is by the grace of God. That's it. If you're sitting here today thinking, yeah, but my sin outweighs David's, who had a man murdered and stole his wife. Peter's, who denied knowing Jesus three times in front of a little girl. You really think you're going to outweigh Abraham, who just caused a whole nation to denounce God? I don't think so. God's grace. The grace of God isn't a New Testament salvation. It's an All Testament salvation. We just came to understand it with a greater clarity in the New Testament. We have all been saved by grace, not of works, lest any one of us boast. Again, it's not an encouragement to walk out the door and be a Christian buffoon. It's a matter of having walked in the door and heard the message, can you shed the behavior? Can you walk out the door in his grace and leave behind the burden? Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your love, your mercies, your tenderness in our lives. Lord, work in our hearts. Change our behavior. Help us to love you more than we ever have. Give us the strength of your Holy Spirit. Abraham confessed that this was a conversation from his history with his wife and how they'd agreed upon this long ago. There are certain compromised agreements we've made long ago in our lives that need to go, need to be done away with. Help us with the strength of your spirit to, sh to shed our sinful selves, to leave behind the things that inhibit 
our relationship with you, and perhaps more importantly in this setting, our testimony of you. Bless us. Keep us. Watch over us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Please stay in fellowship as long as you would like.